Let's stand together for the reading of the gospel. The Holy Gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew, the fifth chapter, beginning at the 21st verse. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus here is speaking. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison." Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. The gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise you, Lord Christ. Christ. Come now, Holy Spirit, we pray. Come and overrule and overwhelm. As we attend to your word, O God, in this act of worship, come and overrule and overwhelm my mouth and my words, our ears and our hearing, so that what is said and what is heard is for the good of your people, and for the glory of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Over the past few weeks, we've been looking at the Ten Commandments as part of our Lenten series. It's essentially a reminder, a call to go back to the basics, back to the basics of what God expects, what God desires for his people, and in seeing our lack, going back to the basics of what we need in Jesus Christ. Transformation, redemption, and empowerment. One of the things about the Ten Commandments is that they are incredibly challenging on two fundamental levels of who we are. First, every aspect of the Ten Commandments challenge the cultural waters in which we swim. They challenge the world in which we live because, quite frankly, the world in which we live is a place of anti-Ten Commandments. God says, I am the Lord your God who delivered you up out of Egypt. You will have no other God before me. And the world presents us good things that can become ultimate things, that is to say, God's. Specifically, we're looking today at the sixth and seventh commandment. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. We're looking at Jesus' expansion, actually his fulfillment of the commandments, to say that uh, murder includes being angry with your brother. And I confess to you, as a man of 41 years of age, I have an older brother. At some point in my life, I have cursed my brother. And I know that I am not the only one in here who's guilty of the same thing. Our world, it wants us. So almost seemingly desires us to be angry. 
in this age of outrage, as one commentator has called it. You think about the, the problem with, with lust or with adultery as well. You can't really drive up and down 98 without seeing some sort of advertisement for something that's inappropriate. There's entire industries built upon the, 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 the sexual sins, lust and adultery. The world doesn't want God's people to live in God's way. And so when we approach the Ten Commandments, God's moral law given to his people redeemed in Israel, given to his people redeemed through Jesus, it's challenging because it challenges everyday life. It's also challenging because there's something inside of us that rebels, that pushes back against the Ten Commandments. Sometimes we want to be angry. Sometimes we like our anger. And of course, sometimes we just have selfish desires physically. And so the Ten Commandments challenge us. They challenge us externally and internally. And let me say to you, a, a people of God gathered here in the name of Jesus, I think it is good for them to challenge us. I say that because in the challenge, if we respond honestly, we come back to Jesus, the one who redeems us, the one who transforms us, the one who empowers us. This morning, as we look at the sixth and seventh commandments, I want to think very specifically about God's giving of these two commandments for the protection of shalom. Let me explain what I mean by that. Over the past few weeks, we've looked at the Ten Commandments, and we've talked about the Ten Commandments being God's way to be truly human. The, the freedom that is found in the Ten Commandments is to live as God has declared his created people are to live. God's created human beings. God then is sovereign over his creation. And so God gets to tell people the way to be human as he intended. He lays that out in the Ten Commandments. And while we've said that God's moral law has universal application, it's good for everybody to live this way, we've also noted just how specifically it is applied. In Exodus chapter 20, God gives, he speaks out the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel. He is redeemed out of Egypt. And Jesus, he repeats these things. He applies God's moral law to his new covenant people. Now this morning, I'd like for us to think about this in terms of peace or shalom or better yet, wholeness. To be truly human is to live in the way God had intended. That means to be whole, that is in Peace in shalom. Shalom is a Hebrew word that is often translated as peace. In the New Testament, there's a Greek word, arene, which is its equivalent. And peace is a great word. Peace is a wonderful translation of both shalom and irene, but it doesn't capture quite the fullness of what those two words mean. When we think of peace, most typically we think in terms of an end of open conflict, an end of hostility. And certainly we're right to do so. But biblically, peace, shalom, isn't just the negation of something, the hostility, it's the adding back of, a positive aspect. It means wholeness or perfection. In Joshua chapter 8, verse 31, for example, shalom is used in reference to a stone, a rock, that is uncut, it is uncracked, it is unmarred, there's no cracks, there's no chunks that are missing from it. It's shalom, it's whole. 
In the Old Testament, the word shalom can also be used to refer to a brick wall that has no gaps. Nothing is missing. It is perfect the way it was intended to be. And so I think maybe what we can say about shalom is that the idea is that something which is complex and multifaceted is as it is supposed to be. It is the way God intended it to be. Shalom is not just used to describe rocks and walls. It's also used to describe people. And if we say that a person or a, a people, a group of people, are within shalom or they have shalom, they have well-being. They have wholeness. They have integrity. They have perfection. They are what God has intended, created them to be. I like the way philosopher Cornelius Plantinga Jr. describes shalom. He says this, it is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. Shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. It's a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder at its creator and savior and opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. And that's reflected in the Ten Commandments. Now, why does God have to lay out in the Ten Commandments the way things ought to be, the way he's created his people to live? Because things aren't the way they're supposed to be. Shalom is not the way things are because sin has invaded into God's creation. Sin has disrupted and defiled shalom. Sin is an invader. It is the enemy of peace. Sin is the enemy of this webbing together of God and his creation. It cuts that webbing, in fact. And it separates the holy and triune creator and sustainer from his creation, his creation from him. Shalom is broken. We're not truly human because of this loss. There's hostility between us and our creator and between us and other people. So God declares to his people, this is not what is supposed to be. This is what needs to be. And perhaps it is an oversimplification, but I, I do think it's accurate. The single storyline of the entire Bible, all 66 books, is about God working to redeem his creation out of sin and to restore it to shalom, to wholeness, to perfection, to peace. God's redeeming work for all sinners is bound up with the restoration of his intended wholeness. Hostility between holy God and sinful humans is ended in Jesus, whom Isaiah, by the way, calls the Prince of Shalom, and about whom Paul writes, he himself is our Irene, our peace. And what is missing in the God's redeeming work is added back. Life is rewebbed with the triune creator God. And so it is, the way to be truly human, the way to live in peace with God and with his creation, it looks like the Ten Commandments, practically. What does it look like to be webbed to God? He's your God. You only worship him, and you don't worship idols or images. You don't use his name in vain. You worship him, and you take your peace in him on the day he's given what does it look like to live in shalom with creation? Well, it looks like not murdering and what Jesus implies. It looks like not committing adultery and what Jesus expands. It looks like not telling lies, not coveting, not stealing. 
That's the way to be truly human, with our lives centered upon God, connected to Him before anything else, and bound up in loving other humans. And God's work of redemption, His redemption of res- and restoration of shalom through Jesus, is an ongoing work. And because it's an ongoing work, it is a work of God's people. And so this morning, as we look at the sixth and seventh commandments after this long introduction, we see that God's people extend shalom by protecting life and the purity of marriage. Upon first blush, the sixth and seventh commandments are perhaps the easiest that we can uh, actually achieve. The sixth and seventh commandments seem very straightforward and relatively simple. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. Simple enough, right? Check the box, move on. Don't murder anyone and don't have intimate marital relationships with anyone, not your husband or your wife. But is that all there is to it? In a word, no. For two reasons. First, there is the expectation that the law itself will be not just externally obeyed, but will be internally recognized. This is to say that what the person does physically absolutely matters. But so does what the person does spiritually, emotionally, and psychologically. Jesus, who is the hinge of God's work of redemption, Jesus, who is the most important interpreter of God's law, reflects upon the internal and external requirements of these two commandments in Matthew chapter 5. There, Jesus states first, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And in his fulfilling of the law, Jesus brings the law to its intended meaning and purpose. As he goes on to explain, there is a greater righteousness that is required by those who would enter into relationship with God. There's an expectation of holiness, not just an external behavior, but an internal confirmation. And in that context, Jesus says this. Here's the fulfillment, the the true intended meaning of the law, the sixth commandment. Yes, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But he goes on to say, everyone who is angry with his brother brother, will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And about the seventh commandment, he says, absolutely, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery. The intended well-being and wholeness between the people of God's creation is broken, Jesus shows us, not just by our actions, but by our words, by our gestures, by our thoughts. The physical killing of someone is absolutely a breaking of shalom. It's seizing a right that is only God's. That's the giving and taking of life. And so we must stand and say abortion, euthanasia, homicide, suicide, and genocide. These are all violations of the sixth commandment. But Jesus goes even deeper. He includes anger and insults, and he directly talks about making peace. Anyone here had a Facebook friend post something stupid and you responded appropriately? (laughs) That you thought was appropriate? I'm the only honest one in here. Thank you, Hal. Thank you, Craig. Three of us. Anyone ever driven on Highway 98 during Memorial Day weekend? A AAA study back in 2016 said that 80% of U.S. drivers expressed significant anger, aggression, or road rage behind the wheel at least once in a year. 
80%. Only once. <laughs> they clearly did not uh, pull Destin area. Anybody ever been angry with a brother or sister in Christ or a fellow human being? Anybody ever been like a cat? A cat. A 2015 article appearing on the website The Science of Us detailed a study on forgiveness and declared cats do not forgive. <laughs> Scientists have observed conciliatory behavior in many different animal species, the bulk of them being primates like bonobos, mountain gorillas, and chimps. Chimps actually they have a confrontation with another chimp and they'll make up, they'll kiss, they'll hug. Scientists have observed similar behaviors in non-primates like goats and hyenas. A hyena will give you a hug after an argument. <laughs> the only species that has so far failed to show outward signs of reconciliation are domestic cats. <laughs> that explains everything. So we may not murder people with our hands, we may not physically kill some people, but with the attitude of our hearts, we may be genocidal maniacs. That's what Jesus says. It's not as simple as saying do not commit murder because Jesus says the heart of the matter is the heart. And what about adultery? And certainly the physical expression of an intimate relationship with one not our spouse is adultery, but Jesus raises the bar. He includes what we do with our minds. And so the intentional looking upon and desiring of an individual for one's own selfish pleasure, Jesus says that's already adultery. You've already committed it. Outside of marriage as God intends and created it to be, the spiritual, emotional, and physical union of one man and one woman is adulterous. And so we may not commit the act physically, but we may have lives inwardly of perversion and adultery. The law is difficult. It's more than meets the eye because it's not just external it's also internal. And the second aspect of why it's, there's more to these sixth and seventh commandments is because it isn't just about not doing something. It's actually about doing something positively. The commandments are not just a negation of a behavior, a behavior to be avoided, but they are the positive command of an addition of a behavior to be embraced. Ed Stetzer puts it this way. Jesus' point is that the law is merely the tip of the iceberg for Christian living. As with an iceberg, there is so much more to the law hidden below our sight line. The law says do not murder, but this is only 10% of the iceberg. The other 90% of the iceberg is found in the positive actions taken to restore shalom, to protect wholeness. In the context of the 6th and 7th commandments, to protect life and preserve the purity of marriage. In practical means, what would that look like? What would it look like to be a person or a people that are working to protect life? What would it look like to be a, a person or a people working to preserve the sanctity of marriage? Martin Luther commented, God tells us to love our neighbors as ourselves, to be patient, peace-loving, gentle, merciful, and friendly to them, to protect them from harm as much as we can. Make big political statements all you want, but how you live with your neighbor tells us more about who you truly are. Do you treat your neighbor as they're a human being made in the image of God, or do you treat them as another disposable piece of property? What about making peace? Jesus says, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there, remember, your brother has something against you, leave your gift there and go. 
First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser, he says. What does it look like to work for the protection of life? Be a person about the business of making peace. Shalom. God's people are to protect physical life, and by Jesus' extension, protecting life means dealing with anger. It means seeking, offering, and receiving forgiveness. It means loving our enemies. Even if they wear blue and orange, (laughs) as opposed to garnet and gold. Protecting life means believing that all people are made in the image of God, that they matter, and living that way. And God's people are to extend shalom by preserving the purity of marriage. Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus is not advocating for self-mutilation. As one scholar puts it, Jesus' statement is characteristic of his figurative and hyperbolic style. He commands us to take drastic measures to avoid temptations to sexual sin. If you have a problem with lust, get rid of the computer and cut the internet line. Don't just put on a password. That's Jesus' sort of 2019 equivalent. We can actively work to protect the purity of marriage by first dealing with our own lust. By dealing with our context, by limiting that which we see. Why? Because to live in freedom means we're li- to live the way God wants us to live. And in doing what we need to do in order to kill what Frederick Beekner calls the ape that gibbers in our loins, that's lust, by being intentional and attentive to our marriage and actively working to protect the marriages of others. In this, God's people are agents for shalom, for the way things ought to be. We can treat one another the way God would have us treat and their work for the restoration of shalom by protecting life and preserving the purity of marriage. These things are big, and these things are important, and we have to ask ourselves the question, why? Why does God, in the middle of these Ten Commandments, why does he make a big deal about life and marriage? I want to submit to you that there's two sort of umbrella responses. These are important because God desires our good, and these are important because in them we reflect back to God and give Him glory. Dealing with anger and lust is for our good because a life of peace and purity is a life of completeness. It is the place of flourishing. It is where we live as truly human, as God intended And let me ask you something. Have you ever seen someone who's been chronically angry, have you ever seen them look happy? Have you ever seen someone who is chronically angry be joyous or look like they're fulfilled? Have you ever seen someone who holds a grudge look like they're flourishing? Resentment, unforgiveness, grudge holding, being angry all the time, it's like sucking on a lemon and hoping that someone else tastes it. And so it's for our good to extend forgiveness. It's for our good to be aware of our anger, to give up our anger. It's for our good to treat others as images of God. It is for our good to protect life, to actively work, to keep even those judged by our wider culture to have marginal utility alive. It is for our good to actively work, to keep from death, to treat people with the purpose of the restoration of shalom, of peace. 
Marriage, as God created it between one man and one woman, is the fundamental social unit between humans within God's creation. As the Bible declares and secular statistics show, humans flourish when marriage is protected. It is the relationship through which we reproduce. It is the place where we are made complete with our spouses. And a marriage where purity is protected is a place where Jesus and his church are reflected. These things are for our good, and we pretend as if God is uh, hurting us by not allowing us to do these things. God says, don't do these things because I know they're not good for you. And live this way because I know this is the best place to be human. It's for our good. It's out of God's love that he calls us to live like he would have us live. It's out of his desire for us to be in his grace, his peace. And it's out of a desire for his own glory. The Westminster Catechism declares that the purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And when people live within God's shalom, when people live within his grace, in obedience to him, he is glorified, he is honored, he is praised. God's people are to work for the restoration of shalom by protecting life, preserving the purity of marriage for our good and for his glory. But can we actually do it? Can we actually do these things? I had a great uncle. His name was Red. Godly man. I was in eighth grade. My father and I took a trip down to Houston to see them. We're driving around Houston, very busy town, and he kept yelling, you donkey, you donkey, you donkey, to all the people cutting us off, and I couldn't figure it out. <clears throat> I didn't understand what was happening, and then later on, I had a conversation with my dad. I said, Dad, why is he calling everybody a donkey? He's like, well, he doesn't want to swear at somebody. But Uncle Red was expressing something within his heart, right, about the donkey who cut him off. Godly man couldn't really keep that commandment, could he? What about a schlub like me? Can we actually do these things? Not on our own because we're sinners. We need an external restoration of shalom with God. We need transformation by God, and we need God's empowerment. Once again, we look at the commandments. We come back to the basics. We need Jesus. God's people are to work for the restoration of shalom by protecting life and preserving the purity of marriage for our good and for his glory. And because of Jesus, and only because of Jesus, we actually can. <coughs> Having failed to live as we ought, we sinners have the privilege, the possibility of casting ourselves upon the mercy of God and seeking his grace. Again, from Cornelius Plantiga, human sin is stubborn but not as stubborn as the grace of God and not half so persistent, not half so ready to suffer to win its way. God's desire is for his creation to be restored to him in that webbing together we call shalom. And in that desire, God has given, God has done that which is necessary. He has given Jesus. And so now we find we can receive redemption in Jesus, in a world where shalom is broken by sin, we need the work of God in Jesus Christ to be restored to God. St. Paul wrote this to the church in Rome. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hostility is ended. What was lost is now gained because we've earned it, because we've been good enough by no means, because God in Jesus Christ gives it. 
In Jesus, by grace through faith, those who believe in him receive the perfect righteousness of the perfect son. And as we believe in him, as we trust in Jesus, we who have violated the commandments, that's every one of us, are justified. We are accounted in, as righteous in God's sight. Shalom, wholeness, perfection with God is restored. We need Jesus for redemption. We need Jesus for transformation. We need Jesus' transformation through the work of the Holy Spirit. Part of the problem, as we recognize in our collect for today, our prayer for today, as we pray that the Lord would purify our disordered affections, is that our hearts are indeed disordered. And so having been redeemed by Jesus, what we need is Jesus to work in us that our disordered hearts would be rightly ordered and aligned towards God. Can you do that on your own? I can't. Jesus sends his Holy Spirit to transform our hearts and our minds that we might be who God has desired us, created us to be. That we might desire what God has desired us to be. That we might love what God has uh, created us to love. God desires to deliver us from our pharisaical tendencies towards external conformity and our internal rebellion. And so believers in Jesus receive the Holy Spirit that we may be transformed in our beings into the very image of the one who saves us. We want to keep the sixth and seventh commandment. You got to be redeemed and you got to be transformed only and by Jesus. And finally, you have to be empowered. You have to be empowered by Jesus, the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, who, by the way, Jesus refers to as his peace. The Holy Spirit given to those who believe in Jesus for the transformation of their hearts and for the empowerment of positive behavior. We cannot fulfill the commandments of God on our own. We cannot keep the internal and external aspects of the law with the purity that God intends. We cannot keep ourselves from anger and lust without God's working within us to empower us to do that which he desires. We cannot protect life without the Spirit going before us. We cannot protect marriage without the Spirit doing the work within us. We need the Holy Spirit to be full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. To be active agents of the restoration of shalom, of peace, we need these things. We need to have these things, and to have these things, we need the Holy Spirit. And so it is. We live in prayerful dependence upon the indwelling Holy Spirit, trusting in Jesus. And in that place, our lives are transformed, we are empowered, and we can do the things God has given us to do for our good and for His glory. Shalom is God's intention for his creation. And the restoration of shalom between the, between the humans of God's creation and God and between humans and humans, that is the work of redemption. That is the ongoing work of God in Jesus Christ, and thus that is the ongoing work of God's people. From the sixth and seventh commandments this morning, we see that God's people are to work for the restoration of shalom by protecting life and preserving the purity of marriage for our good and for his glory. And because of Jesus, we can. I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Holy Father, we do praise you and give you thanks. Lord, thank you for a way to be human. Thank you, Lord, that you have a plan and a purpose. Thank you, Lord, that as we have fallen into sin, you've not left us to ourselves, but rather your desire is for shalom. And you send Jesus. 
We pray, Lord, that we would be a people of Jesus, a people of his redemption, a people of his transformation, and a people of his empowerment, that we would protect life and protect the purity of marriage. We recognize that these are for our good, but ultimately, Lord, we do all these things for your glory, that you would be made name, that you would be made known, that you would be the famous one, that Jesus would be glorified and honored as people believe in his name, join us in building his kingdom, and serve in this world as salt and light. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together as we continue our worship and sing.